Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 49, a new installment of Linguophile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. You are sitting across a table, I'm told right now, from the one and only Ben Zimmer. This is the first time you guys have ever met, huh? Yes, it is. And I'm delighted to meet him. I'm, you know, I'm a little uh, disappointed to see he's a younger American than <laughs> myself. Uh, so, you know. Aren't we all? Mark me down for bitter and resentful. <laughs> yeah, just about everybody. It's a big cohort, as the demographers say. <laughs> How are you, Ben? I'm fine, and I'm very excited to finally get to meet Bob Garfield in person, in the flesh. What's your snap impression? Very distinguished, very very dignified fellow. Yeah, the beard. It's about the beard, right? It's the beard. It's the beard. So, Ben, we got a number of letters on our last episode about the phrase, get one's goat. All very interesting, but alas, no one has found a citation for that phrase prior to the earliest date that you cited, which was, I think, October 21st, 1905. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's still the earliest, still the date to beat. But there is an update of sorts, yes? Right. Well, Michael Quinion, who's a a British uh, writer about language and has a website called Worldwide Words, he already had an entry, a very good entry about Get One's Goat, and he updated it to reflect some of this new research that we were talking about. And he made some interesting points, ones that we hadn't discussed about possible origins. He found, for instance, a newspaper article from Indiana in 1927 that explained that, according to the writer, that the origin of the, of the phrase has to do with kidding, to kid someone. That expression literally comes from a kid like a young goat, because if you kid, you're sort of making a fool of someone like this foolish acting creature. And so according to this writer in 1927, if you're kidding someone successfully, then you've got that person's goat. Mm -hmm. Add it to the pile of theories that people were tossing around in those early days trying to figure out where this expression came from. I think I still prefer the horse racing one, but that sounds good too. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. But you haven't gotten to the body of the story here because this linguist's theory hinges on, I guess it's more of a speculation than a theory, but it hinges on what kids are used for. Right. And, you know, what the end product is. Yes. On the kid front there, Michael Quinion found that if you search in American newspapers from the late 19th century for people talking about getting goats, you keep coming across a story that's kind of a lighthearted vignette about a couple Mr. and Mrs. Jones, there are examples of this going back to 1880. Mr. and Mrs. Jones were starting for church. 
Wait, dear, said the lady, I've forgotten something. Won't you go up and get my goats off the bureau? Your goats, replied Jones. What newfangled thing is that? I'll show you, remarked the wife. And she sailed upstairs and down again with a pair of kids on her hands. Mm. Kids meaning kid gloves, those soft gloves that are made from kid skin, the skin of a young goat. And she explains, well, they used to be kids, but they've gotten so old, now I call them goats. So <laughs> it was a well-traveled joke about this woman who talks about oh, my getting sides. goats. Yeah, no, Boy, <laughs> I, uh, Mike, I'm going to preempt your smart-ass remark by saying, no, I did not live in the 1880s, but I'm sure glad that I didn't because that's not funny. <laughs> just, and if that that joke were all the rage, as uh, Quinian suggests, I want to be from a different uh, epoch. So there's no clear connection here, but at least we know that people were telling this not very funny joke a lot. And so the whole idea of getting your goats, at least, was an expression that might have been on people's tongues thanks to this little anecdote, and perhaps that played an indirect role in eventually popularizing the expression we know today. It's just, again, another theory. Put it on the heap of theories that we have so far. Okay, add it to the heap. On to this week. What is our clue for our mystery word or phrase? Well, we're going to go back to just a plain old word this time, not a phrase. It's a short word, a very short word. In fact, it's short enough that you can actually fit it in longer phrases. You can find it hidden in a, a phrase or two. So there's one phrase that I have in mind, and it's a phrase that is associated with Sarah Palin. Lipstick on a pig. You betcha. <laughs> Bet. Cha. Keep going. You <laughs> Let's see. Um, thanks, but no thanks. The anks. Um, wait. <laughs> well, there were all those demonstratives that you talked about uh, in a recent episode, but that right. also is not it. I can see Russia from here. Okay, I can give you another clue that will help narrow it down. This phrase was so associated with Sarah Palin, she used it as a book title. Going rogue. Okay. Oh. What short word is hiding there in going rogue? Well, you. <laughs> I don't Grog Aha, Mike chimes in Grog is like mead A good motto Mead before grog, never sicker Grog before mead, you're in the clear It's an ale that I think of as Vikings drinking or something <laughs> Or like, you know Aliens on Star Trek, maybe Klingons. I think your uh, understanding is heavily informed by Hagar the Horrible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, I don't know if grog refers to an actual recipe for an alcoholic beverage or if it's more of a general term like beer, say. Or possibly both. Or possibly both. I don't know. Right. Do you have a sense, Says Bob? the man with the definition <laughs> in front of him. <laughs> Bob, how would you define grog? Uh, you know, I think of it as some vaguely Middle English fermented drink quaffed from a uh, tankard of some sort. You have to clash steins with the person sitting across from you, <laughs> maybe bang the table, drink yeah, it down, and then eat fight some them. some meat with your bare hands while, <laughs> yeah. while you're at it. While wearing a codpiece, maybe, and carrying a broadsword. <laughs> we mean you no harm. We're travelers of the realms, 
seeking a warm meal and a cold cup of grog. Some roast pigs and stags and much hearty grog. Okay, your drunk. No, sir, the grog's not yet been brewed that can unsober the old hook. All right, these are quite evocative images. So how old would you say this word is? Mike, you're talking about Vikings, so are you suggesting it's as old as the Vikings? I'm going to go... I'm. I'm going to go a little bit later than the Middle Ages. I'm going to go early Renaissance. Hmm. I don't know. I think it's kind of like, ugh, I want to write the Magna Carta, but I'm thirsty. I'm, <laughs> let me get a tankard of grog. Magna Carta, was it a document signed at Runnymede in 1215 by King John pledging independence to the English barons? Or was it a piece of chewing gum on a bedspread in Dorset? I'll go the 13th century. 13th century and the Renaissance. Okay, well, it's actually only from the mid-18th century. Mm. So, Enlightenment time. Okay, well, you know, this story has the kind of word origin that just seems too good to be true. It's a story that just sounds like folklore, sounds like a myth. And there's nothing I like better than to puncture a myth, but this is a story that has withstood scrutiny. I'm excited especially after the very tangled etymologies of the last two words and phrases. Yeah, right, exactly. This one seems to have a pretty clear-cut origin story. The first thing that you have to know is that grog did not originally refer to something that the Vikings drank or something that people in uh, cod pieces were, <laughs> were drinking. It was actually what sailors were drinking on the high seas when they were drinking rum that was cut with water. That was the original meaning of grog. Now, why were they drinking rum cut with water? Well, it goes back to the traditions of the British Royal Navy. You know, if you bring water on a long sea trip, a long ocean voyage, it's not going to preserve very well. You put it in a cask, pretty soon it's just going to be undrinkable. So what do you drink instead? You drink something alcoholic. The British captured Jamaica from Spain back in the 1650s, and guess what? All of a sudden, the Navy has rum. But alcohol dehydrates you, so it would stand to reason that if you had all of this alcohol on board, you would need that much more water to rehydrate. All right, now that's kind of a physiology point <laughs> that might strike some of our listeners as being immaterial to the current conversation, but, you know, point well taken, Mike. Interestingly, for decades, the daily ration was half a pint of rum twice a day. And we're talking, again, neat rum, rum that is not diluted by water. Whoa. And are we talking the standard 80 proof that you would get today? Well, actually, the alcohol level, I believe, was supposed to be 57%. I don't know what... That, <laughs> that would be 114 that proof. That's 114 proof. Yes, ex there you go. Right, you just double it. There you go. In fact, the term proof originates from how sailors would check their rum. You know, you could tell if it had been watered down. If you poured the rum on gunpowder and lit it up, that would be the proof of the alcohol content. Ah, half a pint twice a day. So we're talking some pretty tipsy sailors aboard the ship here. It may exactly. explain a lot of <laughs> shipwrecks as well. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, this was not really a sustainable thing. And it became a big issue when the British were fighting... Spanish sea vessels in the 1730s, 1740s in the West Indies. Oh, they weren't limited to a half a pint twice a day. They had a whole galleon. <laughs> oh, boy. 
<laughs> so why were the uh, Spanish and the British fighting there in the West Indies back in the 1730s? Well, there was the triangular trade of well, rum, molasses, and slaves, man. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, yes. There was money at stake. There certainly was money at stake and sort of territorial interests at stake. But the fighting that was going on during that period is known to historians with a very colorful name, and that's the War of Jenkins' Ear. So (laughs) there was actually a British captain named Jenkins. Poor Jenkins. Yes, Jenkins lost his ear, obviously, as Bob suggests. There were much more grave geopolitical stakes involved other than this one guy's ear. And I'm going to guess, Ben, that the Spanish refer to this war by a different name. They do. They do. (laughs) Just a Uh, guess. I don't know. I I just can't see them teaching it in their history books as (laughs) Jenkins' ear. In Spain, it's given a completely different name, and that's Guerra del Asiento. Asiento referred to the uh, contract that Spain had that permitted the sale of slaves in Spanish America. So during that time, there was a vice admiral named Edward Vernon, who commanded the British naval forces there in the West Indies during this conflict. Vice Admiral Vernon realized that this rum ration was a big problem. And so he made an order. And we even know the exact date that he made this order on August 1st, 1740. He made in this order the decision that in the future, the rum ration had to be served in a diluted fashion. So here is a quote from this document. This is to stretch it out over a greater period of time, over a greater number of men. Yeah, and also to make sure that these guys weren't getting so drunk. So he gives these reasons. He says, To captains of the squadron, whereas the pernicious custom of the seamen drinking their allowance of rum and drams, and often at once, is attended by many fatal effects to their morals as well as their health, the daily allowance of half a pint a man is to be mixed with a quart of water, to be mixed in one scuttled butt kept for that purpose, and to be done upon deck and in the presence of the lieutenant of the watch, who is to see that the men are not defrauded of their allowance of rum. And then it said, P.S., in matters animal, vegetable, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What the fuck was that? <laughs> Where did that come from? Are you, are you not familiar with the Pirates of Penzance? Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Could you sing that? Maybe it'll sound more familiar. <laughs> Two captains of the squadron? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> you're right. For my military knowledge, though I am plucky and adventurous, it's only been but down to the beginning of the century, but still in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> Now, I just want to say that I don't know if we're going to satisfy my curiosity about grog. We're getting but there. I, I just learned about scuttlebutt, too. A scuttled butt, exactly. The gossip that you would trade on board the ship would be happening while you were mixing up your rum and water or the vessel that was used in order to make sure everybody was getting their properly diluted rum. So it was like the water cooler. Exactly, right. So this involves that water that wasn't very good. Again, I mean, if you're going to dilute it with water, remember the water is not so good after a long ocean voyage. Just boil it. Yeah, just just put it on the big boilers that you have there <laughs> in this 17th century ship. 
I don't think boiling was an option, but there are other ways to make the water taste a little better, to make it more palatable, and that was sugar or limes. This was the suggestion that Admiral Vernon made, at least if they had the money to get some sugar or some limes, mix that in and it would taste a little better. This was actually before they discovered that it was good to have citrus fruits on board to keep the sailors from getting scurvy. One, two, three, four! Our gums are black, our teeth are falling out. We got spots on our backs, so give it up and shout. We got scurvy, we need some vitamin C. We got scurvy, we need a lemon tree. We got scurvy. So, we have definite evidence that this concoction of rum and water was due to Admiral Edward Vernon, the commanding officer there in the West Indies. Now, guess what his nickname was? Vermin Vernon? (laughs) His nickname was actually Old Grog. And he got this nickname before the whole rum and water thing had even come up for a completely different reason, based on the cloak that he wore. He wore a cloak. Of course he did. From a coarse fabric that was called grogram. That's spelled G-R-O-G-R-A-M. And was this like a kind of heavy woven fabric? That's exactly what it was. And it comes from a French term, which literally means coarse grain, gros grain. So G-R-O-S in French, uh, cognate with the English word gross, and then G-R-A-I-N, of course, grain, but grain in the sense of texture. So it was a fabric of coarse texture that was silk mixed with mohair or wool, stiffened with gum. So his nickname was Old Grog. Oh, it's like the way all of Mike's friends call him Spats, based (laughs) on his choice of footwear. (laughs) And they called this Admiral Grog based on his uh, cloak. I got it. All right. Whatever, Capizio. (laughs) (laughs) But this would be like if Mike wore Spats all the time, and then he came up with a mixed drink and he called this one, this is called the spats, you know. So it's getting transferred from something completely different, from the fabric to a drink. So does the word groggy come from grog? Groggy does, in fact, come from grog. Now, you remember when we were talking about getting your goat, there was that apparent crossover from sailor talk to boxer talk. Mm-hmm. Something similar is going on here, but at an earlier point in history. So we have the grog well established by the end of the 18th century that, that is showing up in various sources. And people are already talking about the story of how it came from Admiral Vernon, old grog. From there, it becomes an adjective where sailors would talk about someone being groggy if they had too much grog. So it originally meant that you were intoxicated. Now, how does it become more like what we now think of it as kind of out of it or sleepy? Well, boxers of around, let's say, 1830 or so would be described as groggy if they were punched so much (laughs) in the boxing match that they were stumbling around as if they were drunk. Bucks lands a beauty to the solar plexus. I reckon it's all. A one-twentieth step four fast rabbit punches to the kidneys. A left hook, a right hook, a north hook, a south hook. What a fight! The champ is groggy! And from there, you can pretty easily see the transformation of meaning 
to be something like out of it, not necessarily because of intoxication. Does every word have its provenance aboard ancient ships <laughs> and then later to be transferred to the boxing ring? Is that true of every word or is it just us two weeks in a row? <laughs> it just so happens. So I would imagine, Ben, that the word, like most words, is used for a while in speech before it starts appearing in actual print. When do we see it show up in the written record? Until pretty recently, the earliest evidence came from the 1770s. So, you know, that's still 30 years after uh, Admiral Vernon there uh, made his order. But more and more researchers have looked into this. And in fact, one word researcher has found an example from 1749. The name of the researcher is Stephen Gorenson, the same fellow who managed to find the earliest known example of Get Your Goat. So uh, it's true. It's true. It was something that was taken from the Jamaica Gazette. We don't have the original from the Jamaica Gazette, but it was reprinted in a London newspaper called the Whitehall Evening Post. And it's sort of an account of part of this war between um, Britain and Spain. And there was another admiral, not Vernon, but Admiral Charles Knowles, who... uh, commanded the Cornwall, and he engaged with the uh, Spanish fleet off of Cuba. He was after their treasure, actually, and this was actually not what he was supposed to be doing. He ended up getting court-martialed for this. He, he famously lost his pinky toe in the War of 1812. <laughs> in the sem- Hold it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mike? Yeah, Bob? A little groggy, are you? Uh, let's just say I, I haven't been watering down my rum today. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. So this report from 1749 talks about the conditions on board the ship. And it said, We lived a short allowance, all the crews, and but two quarts of water a day to make it hold out in hopes of meeting them, meeting the uh, Spanish galleons. But short allowance of grog was worst of all. So it's right there at the source, right there uh, in the West Indies, a mere nine years after old grog made his order, We now can fill in the picture a little bit better. We've got examples from the 1760s, the 1770s, and there's a poem from 1781 which really ties it back to Vernon in a very explicit way. Uh, Dr. Thomas Trotter was a surgeon on board the HMS Berwick, and he wrote this poem. A mighty bowl on deck he drew and filled it to the brink. Such drank the Burford's gallant crew and such the gods shall drink. The sacred robe which Vernon wore was drenched within the same, and hence his virtues guard our shore, and grog derives its name. Can you imagine if Vernon the Vermin was not wearing this big coarse cloak, but cardigan? How drinking culture might have changed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have me a cardigan. Bob, you clearly haven't been hanging out in the hipster sections of Brooklyn lately where cardigan sweaters and grog are all the rage. Oh, oh my God. Of course, it was inevitable. Artisanal cardigan sweaters, most likely. Would you wear any other? Of course not. I'm aware of that. I'll handle it. I've got my cardigan. Ben, before we go, I want to mention that you are the inaugural recipient from the Linguistic Society of America of its Linguistics Journalism Award. Congratulations. That's wonderful and well-deserved. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a great honor. Uh, it was quite a surprise to me because the award never existed until uh, they just created it. And 
it's wonderful, I think, just that, that linguistics journalism is being recognized. Let's call it linguistically informed journalism. There are more and more people with backgrounds in linguistics who are speaking to the public about language, about words, and bringing to bear that kind of scholarship and knowledge in an engaging way. And Lexicon Valley plays a big part in that whole process, I would say. Well, thanks. And I think, I mean, I would assume that your appearances on this show are largely, if not wholly, responsible for you winning the award. So perhaps maybe Bob and I should accept on your behalf. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's always uh, quite a privilege to appear on Lexicon Valley in the podcast or write for the blog, but I'm also writing for the Wall Street Journal every week, as well as my uh, Word Roots column for Vocabulary.com, as well as Language Log. I, I, have, yeah, those I have a are, lot of those different... Are nice, too. Uh, <laughs> those are all... And in fact, your next Word Roots column will be about the word grog, and you'll have some additional information. That's correct, yeah. We like to keep that tie-in together, so uh, it all you get all the information you could possibly want about grog. So if you listener are feeling groggy or drunk right now it's the best time to write an email is when you're just tipsy on rum tell us how much you love us tell us how much you hate us you can find us at lexiconvalley at slate.com that's lexiconvalley at slate.com please follow us on twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in the itunes store i want to thank ben the very first ever recipient of the lsa's linguistics journalism award and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mike, are we done here? Uh, Yeah, I think we're done here, Capizio. All right, Spatsy. Later, Gator. Gator.